Quad Lots listeners, it's Joe Weisenthal. I want to let you know about something cool that's coming up on uh, Wednesday, July 15th. Quad Lots is holding our first ever live stream event. Uh, Tracy and I will be interviewing Carson Block, founder of Muddy Waters Research. We're going to be talking to Carson live on Bloomberg.com, the terminal, Twitter, etc. It's going to be 8 p.m. Eastern time on Wednesday, July 15th. So be sure to follow at podcast to catch the live stream of the event. So uh, check it out. Thanks. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Jill Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So, Tracy, we're still in the middle of a crisis. Yes, we are. Three months on, still crisis mode. You know, like one of the things we've been doing throughout this whole crisis is we've been making sure that uh, listeners uh, know the date that we're recording this. And I feel like it's especially important because, A, this, as you mentioned, it's been going on a long time. B, you're in Hong Kong and Hong Kong just had one of its worst days of new cases ever. And you guys were like, the, the exemplars that everyone, or one of the best that we're all supposed to aspire to, and it's not even over there. Yeah, it's pretty worrying. Uh, one of its worst days on record, as you just mentioned. And also Tokyo had a really bad day for infections as well. So the concern is that even in countries that have done reasonably well in containing the virus so far, there is a risk for a big resurgence. Right. So the, the date is at least... Uh... In U.S. time, it's morning where you are, but it's uh, July 9th, 2020. And yes, several months after this began, we are still in the thick of it. You're in Hong Kong. I'm in Texas, where everyone is aware uh, cases are very bad. This crisis is a long way uh, from over, and it doesn't seem like there's any obvious path out uh, as of uh, of this moment. That's an accurate, if depressing, description, yes. Yes. And the thing, you know, obviously we've talked about this a lot. It's it's a multi-crisis crisis because there's the health crisis. There's the political credibility crisis, because even if leaders want to do something or have a you know a plan to uh, fight the virus itself, there's the question of whether they can actually uh, sort of get the country behind it. And then, of course, there's the straight up uh, economic crisis, mass unemployment, a major slowdown in activity and Yeah. And of course, all three of those different crises seem to feed off each other and make each one worse. Uh, You get this really bad feedback loop, I'd argue, as the economy worsens, people get more upset with their politicians and politicians arguably get more distracted when it comes to dealing with the health crisis and then people get more upset. It's a very bad cycle. It's a real like stress test, I feel like, on the entire system all at once. We had a conversation a while back with Adam Tooze, sort of like the everything crisis. And I think, right, as you said, like maybe there was some appetite in the U.S. for a fairly hard lockdown policies early on. But, you know, come the summer, it's really hard. So, um, yeah, it's a it's a bad situation. Okay, so we've set the scene, which is pretty dire. What are we talking about today? So if you're listening to the podcast, we're actually, this is a, you can view this on uh, YouTube. We are going to be talking today with uh, Zach Carter. He is a uh, senior reporter at the Huffington Post. But uh, right now, he's also a best-selling author of a new book, The Price of Peace, 
Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes. And I feel like, um, you know, A, uh, you know, in the uh, economic crisis that we're experiencing, I think a lot of people are talking about Keynesian economics. Arguably, uh, even more than the great financial crisis, we're seeing a sort of greater willingness on policymakers to just spend, like a pure uh, recognition that that has to be part of the playbook, uh, much more aggressive fiscal policy. Um, but it's even more. And uh, I think uh, one of the things and we're going to talk about with Zach is that Keynes was um, dedicated his life to a lot more than just spending when the economy is bad, which is how many people think of Keynesianism, but is actually many more uh, lessons and implications of his work than just what people know him for. And um, I think the fact that we are in this uh, everything crisis sort of makes this a very timely conversation. Yeah, I think this ties in with a theme that we've been touching on, which is there is a purpose to economics, which is supposed to be to make everyone better off. And it feels like that sometimes gets a little bit lost, especially in times like now. All right. So uh, without further ado, uh, Zach, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thanks so much for having me, guys. I'm really excited to to be talking to you. So, like, you know, why is it so hard to read? Like the general theory, like I've tried reading it a bunch of times. You know, I have my you know, chapters, like the one about like the beauty contest is pretty interesting. Like talked about the stock market and some of it I really get. And then other times I read it I'm like, man, it's really tough. Like, what's the deal with that? Yeah, you know, if, if you want to get through the general theory, uh, and I feel like this is a pretty highfalutin audience, so we can we can just go yeah. straight to the general theory. Uh, you know. It, you can get you can get a lot out of that book if you just read chapters twelve and twenty four, and those are the most readable chapters. They're they're, yeah. they're they're those that seem to make the most intuitive sense about the world that we live in today. I, you know, I think there are two things going on with the general theory, but it, it and its unreadability. One is that Keynes is actively still trying to work out his ideas about what's mm. going on as he is as he is writing, and he is in a sense uncomfortable with the sort of radical implications of the ideas that he's developing because by the time he gets to chapter 24 he says uh you know i think we'll have to have some sort of semi-comprehensive socialization of investment and by investment he means he means you know corporate investment you know spending yeah. on equipment research and development things like that in order to uh prevent the type of thing that we're we're experiencing right now in 1936 this is the great depression which in britain had been going on for you know 17 years so He's, uh, you know, someone who comes from this very, you know, traditional liberal enlightenment tradition, and that is not a, a place that he is like super eager to go to. Uh, but he does want to preserve all of those liberal values um, about freedom of conscience, freedom of choice, all, all of these things that that individual liberty that, that we associate with liberalism. But he's he's getting to the point where he, he just doesn't think those things can be saved without massive government activity, and he's not totally comfortable with that. The other thing, though, is that you know when Keynes knew what he wanted to say, he was very clear. He was a very accomplished financial journalist. And I think one of the reasons why we still remember who he is is because he had this incredible ability to connect with the public over the course of hmm. his lifetime. So for most of the 20s and the 30s, he's easily the most popular sort of financial press person uh, in the world, not just in Britain or the United States, but all over the it. world. People, people read his his columns and his magazine articles, and they they understand the way the economy works through what Keynes is saying. He has almost no influence throughout this period on actual government policy. So he's a guy who's capable of communicating when he wants to. But I, I honestly think that when he got to the general theory, he said, you know, 
we are like I'm tr- I, I've had this great success communicating with the public. I have not been able to persuade the policymakers. What if I make this really hard to understand so that a bunch of economists will read it? Like if, if I make this really hard to understand, economists will spend forever diving into it and trying to decipher, you know, liquidity That's preference and, and all these things. You know, he'd been making the sort of basic policy arguments for about about seven years before the the general theory came out. He was talking about the multiplier. He was he, he was talking about deficit spending. He was talking about public works, all, all of these things that we associate with Keynesianism today th- that long predated the general theory. I think he just tried to sort of mystify it so that economists would spend a lot of time digging through it. And, and as a result, it became this big work of economic theory that econ- only the great, brilliant economists could understand. And then the great, brilliant economists could take it to policymakers and to, and to legislatures and to, you know, to presidents and say, well, uh, only we can really understand this incredible work of impenetrable genius. Um, you know, you, you, you must listen to us now. And, and that empowered a, a whole generation of, of, you know, what we now call Keynesian economists to, to, to push for deficit spending, essentially. I think there was a lot more to Keynes than deficit spending, but that, I right. think that's how he ends up becoming so influential in, in the late 30s and, and in 1940. Uh, Zach, maybe just to stop uh, and back up for a second, can you yeah. walk us through how radical Keynes's ideas were actually considered in the 1930s, because I think nowadays everyone just assumes Keynesianism is kind of the economic orthodoxy, but obviously it wasn't always considered that. Well, it's it's been the orthodoxy and it's fallen out of favor. And I think I think now it's 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 back in vogue today. When we think about the gold standard, which was the the, the dominant mode not only of economic exchange but of of sort of international economic cooperation, it was the global geopolitical order. Today, we think about the gold standard as, so, as sort of an instrument of conservatism. People who like the gold standard are, are typically associated with the hard right. They're associated with the very right wing of the Republican Party or, or anti-internationalist movements, things like that. That wasn't the case in the early 20th century. The people who were committed to the gold standard, there were right wingers who were, who were part of it. But there was this belief that liberal internationalism, that, that ex- free exchange between different peoples and different countries would help bring the world to a sort of peaceful place. And Keynes was saying, I like those ideals, but this doesn't actually work. And we're not getting more peaceful. We're becoming more warlike. And, and this is leading us to domestic misery and international conflict. And what he's doing when he says that is blowing up not just sort of a conservative paradigm, but the paradigm that dominates conservatives, liberals, and centrists. It's, it's, it'd sort of be like coming to the United States today and saying, rule of law is a bad idea. The Constitution is stupid. Don't do that anymore. I've got a better idea. It's very, very radical in, in the sense that it's a deep departure from what, uh, what the understood way of doing things in the international order is. There's an almost sort of like quasi-religious moral significance to this order. You know, the gold standard isn't just about growth and, and balanced trade and prosperity. It, it's, it's about respecting different countries. It's about, uh, you know, sort of, sort of loving your neighbor in this, in, this really, in this way that people really do take seriously at the time, even though I think in retrospect, it seems kind of silly. And, and so Keynes is, is, is saying we have to throw all that out. If we care about these values, we have to totally change. 
he's not totally comfortable with the policy implications of, of changing that. And he changes his mind over the course of the 1920s and the 1930s many times. But by the time he gets to the 1940s, in the United States, he's famous for being the deficit spending guy. But in the UK, his biggest policy achievement is being the financial architect for the National Health Service. So he follows this logic through and comes to the conclusion that they have to socialize not just health insurance, but actually the, 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 the entire medical system in the UK. And he, he helps push that through politically. So the implications of this are, are much more radical, I think, than what, than what we've come to understand him as in the United States, where he's this sort of deficit therapist who says, spend money when things go off the cliff. He was talking about realizing uh, and, and uh, fostering a more harmonious democratic society in, in good times and in bad. I want to get to that uh, soon, like the gap between what we call Keynesian economics and Keynesian ideals. But before we do, so we, we set this up. Obviously, it feels to me like your book is very timely, given this massive international crisis, which you probably weren't anticipating when you decided to write it. But why did you? Like, what prompted you as a journalist to say, like, I want to write a Keynes biography because there are Keynes biographies. We've interviewed uh, uh, Lord Skidelsky at least once on the podcast, who's probably the most famous uh, uh, Keynes biographer. But from your perspective, what was it that, in your view, is like, there needs to be another Keynes book and I want to do it? Because it's got to be a tough project. 2008 changed the way people looked at Keynesianism in, uh, in a, a, a kind of foundational way. Keynesianism was already sort of, if you look at the, the like academic literature on this stuff, it was already sort of coming back into vogue over the course of the Bush administration, but it had been really, really deep in the uh, legitimacy ditch before that. So it, it's just barely coming back into respectability among, among academic economists. And 2008 makes a lot of the criticisms of Keynesianism seem very silly. And for me, I was working as a banking reporter at a trade publication called SNL Financial, which is now part of S&P Global, and you know, doing just analyzing banking data and, and looking at credit quality and you know, delinquent loans and, and all the rest. And I, I really loved that job. But it became very clear that in 2008, all the people that I talked to went from saying, markets are rational, um, they reach equilibrium, and we've got to obey the verdict of the rational market to saying, we have to bail out the financial sector. And that was clearly, you know, people weren't stupid. Like people are talking to knew they were changing their tune, right? They, they weren't just like hypocrites, but it was very clear that there was an intellectual shift that was happening. And I said, okay, well, let me read this Keynes guy. I've only, I only knew him from like my econ 101 classes. But when I went back and read him and I tried to read, to be perfectly honest, I tried to read the general theory first and I found it sort of like, it was as pleasant as, as like eating a pretzel covered in thorns, right? It's just not... Great. Can I just say, I'm uh, glad yeah. I'm not the only one. I was like a little nervous. That's like, I'm just glad that. No, it's, said, it's right, terrible. It's terrible. I mean, Keynes <laughs> most of the time is a beautiful writer. His friends are people like Virginia Woolf and Lytton Strachey and E.M. Forster. And he is capable of doing beautiful things with language about economic policy. But the general theory is just not, that's not, not his, his most lyrical work. So I went back and read The Economic Consequences of the Peace, which is the book that he writes at the end of the negotiations over the Treaty of Versailles. He is 
the top representative from the British Treasury at, at the talks about how to establish uh, both an economic and political order at the end of World War I. And he is furious about, about what his own government has done and about the ultimate agreements. And he says, look, the economic terms that we have committed ourselves to in this treaty are going to march the entire continent toward dictatorship and war. And I think it's just, you know, there are people who have, have quibbled with some of his figures here and there over the years, but I just think it's very difficult to argue with that basic premise. It, it, he was talking about something that came to pass and, and for reasons that are very closely connected to why they came to pass. Uh, the reparations that were assigned to Germany were essentially unpayable. They destroyed the German economy and, uh, and that economic wreckage sort of created the breeding ground for fascism. And when I read that, it became clear to me that Keynes wasn't just talking about money and numbers. Economic consequences of the peace is not about deficit spending. Keynes hasn't even thought of that yet. He's just talking about international cooperation and figuring out a way to link economic policy with global harmony. He's still committed to the gold standard in 1919 when he writes this book. But it seemed to me like it was a work of political theory, like the works that I had studied when I was an undergraduate. I, I studied philosophy. So, you know, Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, Enlightenment philosophy stuff. And, and he just seemed like one of those guys to me. And so I started reading and I kept reading. And when you read Skidelsky and other accounts, these are very good biographies. I don't want to denigrate them at all. But they're written from the perspective of, of looking at Keynes as an economist and how he came to develop his economic ideas. They're very, very useful for that purpose. But if you think of Keynes as a social theorist, and if you think of him as a statesman, there's a lot going on in the economic theory that is happening for these, these moral, political uh, reasons that I, I think are really the things that are driving him. I think in a lot of ways, Keynes comes up with a solution that he comes to believe is morally or politically necessary and then sort of reverse engineers it to be economically acceptable to people in economics. He, he has a, a, a really great essay on Isaac Newton, who a lot of people don't know is what was an important economist in the British Empire in the, in the 18th century, um, in charge of the British Mint, all sorts of monetary policy stuff he's doing. But he, he talks about Newton and says, you know, Newton's great genius was this, this ability to have a flash of creative insight. And then he would dress up the creative insight with mathematics after the fact. And I think Keynes was doing the same thing in economics. Um, and, and that makes him you know, sort of more of an artist than an economist, than, than, as we would think of the economist today. It's really interesting how you mentioned it sort of took the 2008 financial crisis to bring Keynesianism back in vogue. And then, of course, it kind of took the Great Depression to make people take Keynes seriously in, in the first place. But just to back up for a second, can you talk to us more about his social vision? Like, what is it that he is trying to reverse engineer here? So with Keynes, it's, you have, always have to be careful because he changes over time. He's, he's not monolithic. But he does have this very consistent vision of, of beauty and the good life um, that he gets from, from being a, an undergraduate at Cambridge and being a member of the Bloomsbury set. So Friends with Virginia Woolf, the great writer, Lytton Strachey, the great writer, E.M. Forrester, the great writer. A lot of uh, painters who are not as well-known today, but people like Duncan Grant and, and Vanessa Bell, who is Virginia Woolf's sister, who in their day were considered very great artists. You know, Van Vanessa Bell would go and hang out with Pablo Picasso in, in Montparnasse all the time. That, that was, you know, they, they were part of this big international cultural milieu. And Keynes himself ended up marrying a ballerina named Lydia Lapakova, who's from St. Petersburg, who's 
basically the most famous ballerina in Britain. This is a, a time when ballet is sort of like a combination between like football and and like Netflix. It's it's easily like the most popular and powerful cultural thing that's happening uh, in in Europe at the time. So he's very deeply involved with this cultural life, and he thinks that this 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 vibrant thing where you can you know you can hang out with Stravinsky and you can and you can you know make out with ballerinas and and drink champagne with Virginia Woolf while having your hair cut by you know somebody who's just got back from seeing Gertrude Stein he thinks this is really the life and it's hard to you know it's hard to disagree with the guy i mean that sounds like a pretty good way to live and he wants to preserve that and when he starts out as a as an economic thinker he's really just trying to preserve that for his his sort of upper middle class quasi elite milieu but as he continues to develop his his thinking he says you know if we don't open this space up to other people the rabble are going to revolt and they are going to overthrow us and we are not going to be able to have these parties anymore and that is going to be terrible so in in order to preserve this sort of lifestyle we've we've got to democratize it and he starts thinking about ways to, to essentially alleviate the very high inequality of the late gilded age that he's living in um, in order to preserve the sort of high cultural achievements of that of that era, thinking that you know it's better to democratize these things than to have them be smashed by what he's particularly worried about is the march of authoritarianism, which he thinks is brutal and violent and terrible, but but also just kind of gauche, just just there's just bad art from the fascists. So, so if you, if you want to have a beautiful world, you're going to need to to democratize it. And as he continues to develop his thought, he believes that the sort of possibilities for democratizing this are wider and wider. So he ultimately ends up concluding that economic scarcity, which at least when I was studying economics as as an undergraduate, I was told you first thing, first day in Econ 101 is economics is the study of, you know, scarce resources and and infinite wants. Keynes just says that's that's not the subject of economics. The subject of economics is uncertainty and human decision making in the face of uncertainty. Scarcity is not the thing that we have to worry about. We can give all this stuff to everybody. That's a very, very radical, I think, rethinking of what economics is. And I don't think it's ever really been integrated into the policy agenda of people who call themselves Keynesians in, in sort of government politics. Like, I, I don't think Paul Krugman, for instance, talks about uncertainty very often. He talks about deficits, and, you know, debt to GDP ratios and things like that. You don't see these guys talking about uncertainty. Uh, one of the great contributions I think that Lord Skidelsky made, I think, was was trying to recenter uncertainty as the key to to Keynesian thought all the way back in the 1980s. You said he was scared of fascism. I'm just wondering, was it fascism or was it communism? Because I think people forget in the 1920s and 1930s how absolutely terrified most of the world was about um, rising waves of, of socialists and, and communism in the East. It's it's both early on, but um, he he has a very interesting quote in in 1922. He goes to uh, to this big international conference at Genoa in Italy, which is designed to renegotiate the the terms from the Treaty of Versailles from 1919. And he's he's writing all of these dispatches back that are being published all over the world. He's he's syndicated. He's a very famous guy, and he basically says there there are people who think the big challenge of the world today is between the sort of bourgeois liberal states of the 19th century and and the socialist stuff that's happening in in Soviet Russia which is, is you know there's very recent russian revolution stuff he said i disagree 
uh, I think the real challenge is between this this thing called militarism, I'm paraphrasing here, and liberalism. And that militarism believes in the imposition of a culture, in, in the imposition of, of sort of social hierarchies against people. And liberalism is, a, is about free ideas and free individuals. And socialism is sort of this, this you know, kind of weird variant of liberalism that he's, he's not totally comfortable with yet, but he doesn't see it as being a totally alien thing the way he sees the, the hard right that's rising in Europe at the time. And, and I think we forget when we, when we talk about Keynes often in, in the rise of fascism, there's like Keynes in 1919 and then there's, there's Hitler in 1932, but there's the Beer Hall Putsch in 1924. There's Mussolini in, 1920, in 1924. There are there's all of these uh, very intensive outbreaks of far-right political violence that are happening across Europe um, very quickly after the end of, of the First World War. And that's that's what's really animating him. He doesn't. He eventually goes to Soviet Russia in 1926 and comes back and says, "This is a disaster. Don't do this. These people don't believe in the good life. They're totally ascetic. Like they they refuse to enjoy anything. It's it's he's against the the, the sort of political oppression that he sees, the, the the sort of paranoia that he sees the in the the government breeding. But he also just thinks that it's sort of like a colorless, lifeless." existence that it's it's made people um joyless in in this it really sort of spiritual way so he's a critic of communism but it there's a reason why a lot of his critics who arise after world war ii are are on the right and and not on the left um he he sees the 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 coming of right-wing militaristic authoritarianism as the great threat facing society and he also says well, yeah, we shouldn't do Soviet Russia too at the same time. Um, he's he's often saying we need to find ways to move left, what we'd call left today on economic policy. In his time, it's not clear what whether what he's doing is left, right, or center, to be, be very clear. Um, but he's often saying we need to do left-wing economic policies to prevent this, this sort of right-wing dictatorship politics from taking over. So how did that change? So here you have this sort of social theorist philosopher, even perhaps as you characterized him, something of an artist, who then sort of built a economic vision to sort of buttress that those ideals. And those ideals, as you said, you know, about spreading his vision of the good life to more people, maintaining that lifestyle. How did we get this thing called Keynesian economics, which is, oh, the you know, the unemployment is here, so we have to set interest rates here, and we have to spend this much. How did that become a thing where it got so seemingly divorced from the philosophy? Well, I think this gets back to your first question, Joe, when you were talking about why is the general theory so hard to read? And we have remembered Keynes because the economics profession took him up as sort of this important idol icon that they could hold up and say, Look, the great Keynes said we must do it this way, therefore it is legitimate. He's like a historical figure who had great prestige, who was well-respected around the world, and in invoking his name had this sort of legitimizing power over policies that people would invoke. And the policies that people wanted to pursue in the United States, which became the sort of global economic hegemon at, after World War II, would, it, it, and that's important because the UK was the global economic hegemon before the, the U.S. took over. And so because Keynes is the most prominent economic figure from that, Americans are very, very eager to take somebody from sort of the last old order and say, 
look, this guy, this guy is very serious. He knew what he was doing. We can refer to him for, for our policymaking. But in the United States, the economics profession doesn't really want to abandon its basic assumptions. It likes the Keynesian policies because it can see that they they worked. I mean, they watched the you know the New Deal and the Great and, and and World War II and saw the war spending, but they don't really want to shift the focus of economics away from rational actors and general equilibrium theory. And and so they start saying, well, you know, I think the most the 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 most popular version of this is Paul Samuelson, who's you know probably a lot of viewers here, you know, like me, you know, you read the Samuelson textbook as your Econ 101 book, right? I mean, this is this is how Keynesian ideas really get out into the mainstream is, is through these textbooks. And Samuelson basically says, look, things get kind of wacky if we're not at full employment. Markets are rational, you know, you've got supply and demand and they hit their equilibrium. That happens unless we're not at full employment. And if we get into full if we get out of full employment, things go into this topsy-turvy world. So we just have to figure out a way to make sure that we have full employment and we'll do fiscal policies. And he doesn't really investigate what that means for the nature of the broader theory. You know, why is it that things would not be at equilibrium if people are rational actors and things generally do reach equilibrium? Why do you, they, they start talking about external shocks and, and, and things like this that, that have no, re, they're sort of ad hoc additions to the theory, but they don't require you to break from these other other things about economics, which look, they're useful. It's not, you know, people talk about these things because they're intuitive. They make sense. And when you're talking particularly about like a small business and, or a household and, and supply and demand and how monetary flows work there, they, they make a lot of sense. They don't tend to work, I think, on, on a large social scale, but they just sort of keep, keep hand-waving that. And in the United States, this this principle is really useful because it just says, look, the government can spend on anything and it will be good for the economy. So whatever it is that your democratic or Republican government wants to spend on, whether it's the war in Vietnam or the invention of Medicare under, under Lyndon B. Johnson in the 1960s, these projects are all good for the economy because they will increase demand and they will, they will get the economy back to equilibrium. And Keynes wasn't in favor of spending as such. He wasn't in favor of deficits as such. He had a social vision and it mattered very deeply to him what you actually spent the money on and why. But if you turn him into this sort of sterile economist who only thinks about money and numbers, who is only a scientist who you know, pushes up his glasses on his nose and, and just tells you how the equations balance, then you can use that guy to, to justify different moral considerations. And he's not this sort of partisan or or philosophical or, or, or uh, a moralist figure who, who would have an agenda, right? And he's dead, so he can't defend himself. <laughs> and, and this is what happens over the course of the 50s and especially the 1960s. And then, of course, you have this inflation crisis in the 1970s, and people say, well, Keynesianism is responsible for, for inflation, so it, it doesn't count anymore. Um, but you have about 20 years where, where people are just trying to justify the political agenda that they have for you know, good and bad reasons, for conservative and liberal reasons. And Keynes is the guy who can be invoked. Nixon invokes him, you know, LBJ and Galbraith invoke him. Uh, th there are very different types of presidents in the United States who are saying, this is our guy and this is, this is why we are doing what we are doing. Just to dig into that a bit more, I'm curious, who do you think uh, misused Keynes the most in that context? <laughs> oh, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard to say. I, you know, I think... LBJ is a very is a really fascinating person 
to me because I think his social programs that he was doing in the United States are exactly the types of programs that Keynes thought were, were, were necessary. So, you know, LBJ creates food stamps. A lot of the New Deal programs that we like, like in the United States, like Social Security, they become the thing that we understand them to be because LBJ expands them so much and he creates Medicare. Uh, it, there's just a lot of this social safety net kind of work that seems very Keynesian to me that is protecting society from the swings of the market. You know, when things go up or things go down, you've still got this stuff and you're not going to be just sort of thrown to the wolves. But LBJ is also doing the Vietnam War and Keynes wanted to do all of that stuff so that people wouldn't go to war. He thought, he thought you could use economic policy to both create social justice and prevent international conflict. And so there's just this deep contradiction within that administration from, from a Keynesian perspective, where they're doing all of these things that Keynes would approve of, but they're simultaneously using his ideas to spend an enormous amount of money on this conflict in Vietnam, which kills you know, at least a million people in Vietnam. It's, it's, it's 50,000 Americans, but it's, it's a complete catastrophe for, for people living in Vietnam. And I, I think he, he would have been extremely, extremely uncomfortable with that. I think it would be furious, frankly. And, and you get to, to Nixon, and Nixon basically does you know, the same thing. But with a more explicit focus, he invokes the name of Keynes you know, a couple of times, saying, I'm going to do deficits. Uh, I, I just think that war stuff, he was so scarred by World War I. You know, he, he came of age thinking that everything was fine. He didn't even have to become a famous economist. He didn't have to become a famous writer. He could just sort of frolic in the lawns of Cambridge and talk about you know, philosophy and Plato with these, with these other smart people, and everything would be fine because, because they were all working their way towards progress and beauty, and war was going to be a thing of the past because all these great ideas were making society more and more harmonious. And then the war comes along, and it just shatters that vision entirely. And so he's just spending his entire life trying to prevent another war. He just thinks that this He's, he's deeply, deeply shaken by this. And so the idea that his theories would be used to create massive international war machines, I think would have absolutely horrified him. Let's bring it forward a little bit to the present, because as uh, you mentioned, you know, basically since the last uh, financial crisis, Keynesian ideas have been on the rise somewhat. He's been invoked a lot lately. And I, you know, there's uh, there was a lot of reluctance to spend money during 2008, 2009. Now everybody's spending money. Even even the Germans who are like famous for like not spending money, even they're spending money like. Let's talk about like some of the other things. So obviously, okay, spending money. It seems like that's necessary. We need to do a lot more of it. There's not a whole lot of disagreement. It's kind of impressive. No one even really talks about like deficits that much or the national debt. Like nowhere near where uh, in 2008, 2009. But A, we have a problem of we haven't been able to end the virus crisis, especially in the U.S. where there's a serious political legitimacy problem. It's really it's been really hard to marshal the resources to get it done, to suppress it to an acceptable degree. And then even if we do our you know, we just came off of like almost a decade of underemployment. 
uh, from the last, it is such a slow recovery. I don't think anyone wants another, you know, to wait till 2030 until we have the unemployment rate below 5% again. So like beyond just the acute need to spend money, what can the next set of leaders, whoever it is here, elsewhere, like what are the ideas that they should draw from, from Keynes so that we don't have this like ongoing pol political legitimacy crisis and we don't have another 10 years of underemployment? Uh, you know, with the caveat that it's always a very dangerous thing to, right, to raise 100%. the to raise the From dead, your you know. view of like what you know, yeah, you know, I I, I think um, you know I, I think your point about about the 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 public health crisis is is it's very simple, but it's really important. You know, Keynes didn't want to be remembered as a deficit ther therapist. He wanted to be remembered as a guy who addressed the great problems of his day, and the great problems of his day were war and depression. The great problem of our day is this pandemic. So you have to address the pandemic. You have to figure out how to cope with that and how to build credibility with the public uh, in particular about how, to, how, to, how you're going to deal with that. You know, a lot of Keynesian theory on economics is not about equations balancing just so, but about uncertainty and building a confidence among not only investors, but the public that tomorrow could be better than today. Because if you don't believe that tomorrow can be better today than today, you're going to keep hoarding your money. You're not going to go out and spend and, and investors are not going to go out and invest. You're going to keep your money under the mattress, right? I've spent a little bit more money in the pandemic because I've had some uh, pretty decent book sales, but you know, I'm still not like, you know, I didn't buy a house, right? <laughs> you know, like you'd be crazy to, right? People are. That's the weird thing. Housing's actually doing really well. Yeah, it's, no, it's that's true. It's, true. It's, it's weird. It makes no sense to me. But anyway, keep going. Uh, yeah, I, I keep waiting for New York rents to go down, and so I can move, but it doesn't happen. So uh, the, um, the 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 key thing there is is to find a way to make the public believe in what you're doing. And I think for the U.S. This is not so much a, a problem of dollars and cents as, as it is a problem of just straightforward leadership. Like nobody believes the Trump administration, right? And I don't know if anyone's going to believe them until they change. There's, there's sort of this, um, the, the closest parallel I can think of is, is the ECB in, in the, the 2010 to 2014 austerity crisis in, in, uh, in, in Europe. The ECB just kept saying crazy things for, for years and years. And people were like, there, there was just no reason to believe that anything they were going to do is actually going to solve the problem. And then all of a sudden, Draghi says, you know what? We're just going to provide unlimited support. We're just going to do it. And there's this huge shift in investor sort of confidence in, in, in the, the general sort of belief about how the world works. That's just with a decree, but he backs it up with actual, actual policies I don't know if Trump is capable of making a decree like that because I don't think people believe him the way they believe other public officials. They they don't trust him. But somehow or, ever, or other, the government's got to be able to convince the public that they can actually control the pandemic to such an extent that when they say, you know, if these kids are going back to school, it's actually pretty safe. If you want to go to the beach, it's actually pretty safe. But if you want to go to a bar, maybe it's not. You know, they, there have to be ways to figure out what we can do in such a way that people aren't just you know, hiding in their apartments all the time, becoming miserable and angry and getting ready to protest, right? Not that I have a problem with the protests that have been happening, but I think it's pretty obvious that a lot of the energy that's being expressed in the streets is pent up pandemic anger. So you, so you have to deal with the, the crisis first, the actual public health crisis. You have, to, you have to care about 
the optics and 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 sort of the communication with the public and why they would why they would believe in you. But you then also have to convince the public that the government actually works for them. You know, the United States has had 35 years of accelerating inequality. And as a result of that, I think it's pretty clear that there are different people who are living in different political worlds, different societies, really. And the pandemic is really underscoring this. There are people like me who get to, you know, hide out and I'm in my in-laws house in, in Northern Virginia here. I'm hiding out here talking to you guys and, and collecting uh, royalties for a book. You know, I don't get to do all the fun things I used to do, but this is not like mass suffering for me. I take my dog down to the creek. It's okay. There are other people who have to like go to work every day and risk death in order to, to serve the rest of the country. And that is just an accelerated, intensified version of the way that the country has been sort of bifurcating for, uh, for decades now. And if we're going to be part of the same political project, I think Keynes would look at that and say, you know, forget about even social justice. Those guys are not going to hang together. These people are going to be at war with each other if you don't find a way to make them feel like they're part of the same project. And economically, you've got to just bring them close to, closer together so they're living in the same worlds. And, and so you know, he, would, he would talk about inequality not so much as a, not even, not even for, you know, he came up with reasons to say, you know, here's, here's why you know, giving poor people money is more effective than giving rich people money so that you, know, you get more growth out of it. But you know, his real motivation for this was that he was afraid society would fall apart and descend into chaos. And I, I, think, I think addressing inequality would be something that he would have very, very high on his list. Uh, but I think he would also be looking at the breakdown of these international systems. The relationship between the U.S. and China is just awful right now. The relationship between the countries of Europe is awful right now. And he would come up with some brilliant sort of grand plan that would probably be politically impossible, where he would try to alleviate inequality in the United States, fix the, re- the trade relationship with China, and cure the pandemic all at once. And, you know, I, I don't pretend to have his, his like creative genius, but he would try to find some magic formula that would attack all three of these things. And then he would pitch it to everybody across the world. And then he would watch in dismay as everybody refused to do it. <laughs> um, and the world then descended into chaos again. Just on that note, what do you see as the major weakness of Keynesianism? Because as I listen to you talk, and to me, it seems like if you want the government to be a stabilizing force, not just on the economy, but on society at large, then that government needs to be capable in various ways and aligned with a certain form of society. So to me, that seems like a flaw in the plan. But I'd love to get your thoughts on what you see as the big problem here. No, I, I think that's exactly right. You know, Keynes believed, he, he's very much this philosophical rationalist. He believes that there are real eternal truths that are out there sort of in the ether that we can, you know, divine through, through pure reason. And once we see them, we will, we will, you know, a light will go off and we will recognize that. And that by arguing with people and presenting good, uh, good arguments to them, people will come around and they will agree to these things. And he is, he is, he is reacting very sharply against Marxism, uh, against particularly the, the like very hard materialist versions of Marxism presented by Lenin that are very, very popular in Europe in the 20s and 30s, um, where the, the argument is that people don't listen to arguments at all. Everything is determined by the economic structure of society. And so it's a, it's a, it's a fool's errand to even engage in philosophical debate. And he thinks that's just totally outrageous. But I do think that while, I mean, I think it's very clear that people can be persuaded, I think Keynes's belief that people are persuaded 
it just based on the <laughs> the eternal truths of arguments is uh, it, it, it's politically naive, you know? People find different things persuasive. People do listen to arguments, but the reasons they find them persuasive and not persuasive are often dependent on all sorts of other factors. They don't have to necessarily be, you know, the 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 forces of production or whatever that that you would see from from you know certain sort of crude Marxists from the twenties and thirties. But it's it's hard to, it's hard for me to believe that you know you could talk to somebody from the Mortgage Bankers Association and tell them that we can really save the economy if we just write off uh, you know second liens. There's a reason why people don't find that persuasive. They don't. They don't even have to be acting in bad faith to not find it persuasive. But there's there are factors in their lives that have made them think in certain channels that make that difficult. You know, when I used to work at SNL Financial, um, we had CNBC on in the office all day. You start thinking about the world through that media that's being pumped into your the, the horizons of what is possible start to start to feel that way. And it's not because you're stupid. It's not because you're, you're venal or corrupt or something. It's just, this is the way you become accustomed to thinking about things. And when I came to HuffPost, suddenly we had MSNBC pumping into my head all the time in the office. It's a totally different set of assumptions that just sort of start undergirding your thinking. And you, you have to be careful in all of these situations, right, to try to maintain your independence. But, but people are stamped by the sort of social forces around them. And for Keynes, I just think he was too... He had this very majestic and and kind of childlike belief in people's ability to be persuaded that that sort of took them to be these these sort of rational atoms that had nothing no social forces at play on them and and that's just that's just not the way people are you know I love your point about the sort of the state that we're in is sort of this accelerated version of the pre pandemic state, particularly with respect to inequality. And there are people whose jobs require them to work often at very little pay and expose themselves to potential health risks and death every day. And then there are people like the three of us who get to talk about canes professionally and safely. And it's uh, but it's also you see it in the market, too. And you see like this acceleration where tech stocks, which were already doing very well pre-crisis, have absolutely soared interest rates, which were already headed down. Headed out further, like every trend, it feels like going into this crisis has actually been accelerated. It hasn't been a reversal at all in some sense. But I'm just curious, like, you know, you said Keynes sort of lived in fear of chaos and society falling apart. I've always sort of been paranoid of that myself even before that. So I feel sympathetic. <laughs> like, do you think we're sort of like, this is a big moment? Like, just, you know, obviously it's a big moment in terms of a crisis, but in terms of like, these trends potentially uh, hitting their breaking point or their possible limits if we don't take a different approach? Or can we put it back in the bottle and just sort of go back to December 2019 in some way? You know, I think the, the sort of nice response to the 2008 crisis was the Occupy Wall Street movement, where you had all of these hippies hanging out in Zuccotti Park. And they're pretty much harmless right they just they're just walking around talking about love and trust and and having really unproductive sort of strategy sessions but like but meeting well and like talking about a better world they they succeeded in i think reframing the sort of narrative about what was wrong in 2011 it stopped it stopped being about if you if you were watching mainstream cable news at the time it went from being everything went from about the deficit to being about inequality very very clear shift in the narrative but but then it was over I think the really nasty response to 20, 
2008 is the Trump candidacy. And the way that Trump demagogues against uh, immigrants and scapegoats people who are vulnerable, I, I think that's, that's another way of expressing and channeling the anger that happened as a result of that, of that crisis. We, are, we were at a point, I think, before the pandemic where it looked like we might just sort of glide past the Trump administration into some, like, might, might miss the, you know, a lot of people have suffered in the last four years from, you know, Hurricane Maria, all the rest. Uh, but, but we would have missed these, these massive, massive calamities that I think people who were very worried about the Trump administration in 2015 had been talking about. Um, and we've now not missed those. And I, I think the question is, what, what comes next? We, we've watched on the right people armed with, you know, these massive, crazy looking guns, just sort of storming the Michigan state legislature. Uh, on the left, we've had uprisings in every American city. For the last uh, month, basically, I think they're 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 dying down a little bit now because the pandemic's getting so bad. But you know that's that's a combustible situation, um, and this and this situation economically it does not improve. Right, things are going to get worse. We haven't even seen this as a financial crisis. It's possible that all of this stuff that's happening in the you know real economy transfers to the monetary economy, and we have a banking crisis that that compounds all of this. It's possible it just gets much worse without that. The uncertainty that's hanging over people's lives, I think, is extremely damaging. People don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. They don't know when they're going to be able to have fun. No one knows if they're going to be able to watch, you know, basketball in the fall. I mean, these very simple things about people's lives, simple and and then emotionally compelling, are are up in the air, and that just creates a great deal of anxiety. So, I find it very hard to believe that we're not at some sort of inflection point. I, I cannot believe that the the global economic order that we are going to see in 2022 or 2024 is going to be, you know, some sort of moderately tweaked version of the global economic order in 2019. I think something is going to have to change because the, the system is just breaking. It's it's not working, right? We, we were already having stresses, particularly for globalization, before this happened. But But right now, I mean, all sorts of trade you know, supply chains are breaking down and trade relationships are just falling apart because of the pandemic. And it's, it's really hard to see how you rebuild in a globalized way without either massive international coordination, which would require a total rethink of the way that we're doing things now, or, or sort of a, a, a sort of retreat into economic nationalism where people just, where countries just try to do things on their own so they don't have to be dependent on these international, uh, you know, legal issues. Either way, Things are going to change very radically, and, and, and there will be a lot more social unrest before, uh, before it's over. Zach Carter, thank you so much for joining us. I've started your book. Uh, I haven't finished it, but I'm really looking forward to uh, finishing it now, <laughs> and that was uh, fantastic. And it really does feel very timely. Uh, you know, I know I'm sure it's a multi-year. What year did you start it? I sold the proposal in uh, uh, March of 2017, but I've been working on it for a year. So I, I really started taking it seriously in March of 2016. So right around, basically when the Trump pres- Trump campaign seemed to be taking off, I was like, I, I just can't keep covering American politics day to day all the time without something else because I'll go nuts. Because I was covering the 2016 campaign and it just, it was an unpleasant thing to cover. It just was not fun. <laughs> and so I sold the, the book as like a, a way to, you know, retreat into a different part of the world that still felt intellectually serious enough to actually allow you to like 
emotionally engaged so that you could retreat from what was going on. Tracy, this is a good reason for us to write our book. <laughs> I was going to say, I wish I was this productive because when I want to retreat from the world, I watch like old movies and eat junk food. But I very much admire that you went off and wrote a book about canes. And yes, Joe, we yeah, should write it. It's really cool. Old movies and junk food have a have a have a place. I, I did plenty of that in 2016 too. But uh, but you know, it, it, you can only distract yourself for so long. You have to find something to like invest yourself in, and that that's really the way to escape. And for me, it was British monetary policy in the 1920s. <laughs> right. Well, Tracy, let's get on our book. Let's, let's let's start working on it. All right, uh, Zach Carter, thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. I thought that was great. And Tracy, in the, um, you know, what Zach talked about at the end, specifically this sort of like the difficulty of really even imagining just going back to like some version of 2019, you know, just beyond the economics and the life, like, you know, just from an investor standpoint, like that's a huge question. Yeah, I agree. I'm actually really surprised that we managed to go through that entire podcast without mentioning MMT once for you. I was waiting for you to bring I it up. I never bring it up anymore. It's always someone else. It's always you. Uh, you know, I, I don't bring it. It's not me bringing it. I wasn't. Okay, but really, I mean, there is that. Well, yeah. you either call it a criticism or a compliment, I guess, but there is that line of thought that MMT is just another version of Keynesianism. Yeah, we could have asked him. I'm in a, like, a chat room where we talk about MMT. His accent it too, so. I'm in a chat room where we lot. exclusively talk about <laughs> MMT. All right, all right, all right. But it was a really fascinating conversation, and I don't know, like it it sort of it sort of makes me think that the problem isn't necessarily economic, it's political, yeah. which is what I've said about MMT over and over. Tracy, you're the one who keeps bringing this is like three or four times now in a row where I don't say anything about it, and it's always you bringing. Okay, okay, I'm not going to say MMT anymore. I'm just going to say, listening to Zach, it really makes me think that, again, the problem yeah. is about politics and not necessarily economics. Yes. It's these different visions of the world, and no one can actually agree on where we're supposed to be going and get aligned on them. A hundred percent agree. And I really do think that, like, e even if, like, you know, you're purely just an investor and even if, like, you just want to, like, make money, I think that point is so crucial that you can't avoid politics. And I think, like, people think of, like, politics and, like, oh, maybe Joe Biden is going to win and raise the tax rate by two percent. What's that going to mean? Or maybe he's going to, you know, put a higher tax on prescription drugs. What does that mean? Whatever. But I think that right now, like, there is a deeper question politically, and it's in the U.S., but also around the world, but also, like, specifically the U.S. is, like, will this force us to go in some different trajectory? And I almost feel like if you're an investor, it's like, and you want to figure out what's going to happen with inflation or what's going to happen with wages, you know, we're like, so everyone's, you know, they look at, like, the Fed balance sheet or the deficits or whatever. But I do feel like these fundamental questions of like what kind of like world will political leaders try to rebuild when the virus is gone is going to just be this huge thing and there's so much uncertainty and the question of like can we will they will they try to just get back to 2019 light is a huge un, uh, unknown question. Absolutely. All right. Well, on that big question, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there.
Okay, this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Jill Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow our guest on Twitter, Zach Carter. His handle is Zach D. Carter. And of course, check out his new book, the bestseller, The Price of Peace, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes. And be sure to follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson, at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts under the handle at podcast. Thanks for listening.